We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Uh, back in studio with us once again is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Hey, good evening. And also in studio with us today, uh, we've got a newcomer to the program, uh, that being Bill Sharp. He's a political scientist and historian focusing on polarization in Taiwan society, and uh, he is currently a visiting fellow at Academia Sinica. Bill, uh, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And by phone, we've got ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Good evening to you as well. Good evening. On the show today, well, we're finally catching up on the news cycle and taking on the whole OBI Pharma debacle. Of course, earlier this week, Academia Sinica president Wang Shihui was named as a defendant in an insider trading investigation related to the company. Whole lot of backstory there. We'll catch you up on all that and give you the latest as well. Then to round out the show, a delegation from the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council is in town to strengthen U.S.-Taiwan business ties. So we'll be taking a look at how those business ties are shaping up. But first, snubs, brushings off, cold shoulders... Taiwan has been getting a lot of this treatment in the international sphere over the last week or so. Of course, last week there was the Kenya extraditions, followed shortly thereafter by the Malaysia extraditions. And China has been slow to accept a Taiwanese delegation to resolve both of those incidents. Then this week, a Taiwanese delegation was oh so kindly asked to leave the OECD meeting in Belgium. So a lot of roadblocks on the diplomatic front for Taiwan. Uh, but what does it all add up to? Are these stories uh, simply unrelated setbacks, or do they perhaps reflect cooling cross-strait relations as the inauguration of one Tsai Ing-wen approaches? Is China, as many commentators have supposed, trying to send a message? Well, that's the question we're going to be putting to our commentators in just a second. But before we do, uh, Gavin, let's catch everyone up on all these stories, uh, starting with the big one. China has actually now accepted Taiwan's delegation. Uh, they arrived there yesterday, I believe. Uh, and they're over there to work out the extradition issues related to uh, the telefraud investigations in Kenya uh, and Malaysia. Now, last week, when we were talking about this on the show, this was the Kenya issue. Why are we now talking about Malaysia as well? Because, of course, Malaysia deported 20 ROC nationals earlier this week as well. And last week, in fact, they've, they've, they've deported two batches of ROC nationals Malaysia for telephone and telecom scams in the past week. The first lot, of course, jetted back to Taiwan and were met at the airport by law enforcement officials who simply found out who they were, confirmed their identities and realised they didn't have any evidence to hold them. So it let them go. Right. And uh, interestingly there, though... China had that evidence, and they weren't going to release that evidence. No, they weren't. But then a second batch of ROC nationals was deported from Malaysia earlier this week on Monday, and they were promptly taken to court in the morning, having landed in having landed. And the Taichung District Court basically held eighteen over, so mm. eighteen of them were detained. Right. The court, although the court did say um, China does have the evidence. The little evidence that they had given to Taiwan officials was enough to make the judge basically say, well, they are, you are being charged with fraud. There is evidence to say you committed fraud. Ergo, we're keeping you in detention. All right. So just to very simply put, the Kenya issue is there's still a lot of Taiwan nationals in China being held over the fraud that was committed in Kenya. The Malaysia issue, whole bunch of suspects being held in Taiwan. China has most of the evidence. So there's some kind of complications there. But now we do have a delegation uh, from Taiwan in China. Uh, what are they up to right now? Yeah, they jetted off to Beijing on Wednesday, and they apparently on Wednesday afternoon met with their counterparts from China, and the delegation was made up with officials from the Justice Ministry, the Mainland Affairs Council, the Straits Exchange Foundation, and the Criminal Investigation Bureau. As I said, they jetted off to Beijing on Wednesday. They held what were described as brief talks Wednesday afternoon. Then Thursday, they were allowed to speak with some of the... or We don't know how many. 
whether it was all 45 ROC nationals who were deported to Beijing from Kenya or just some of the 45 ROC nationals that were deported from China to Ken, from Kenya to China, rather. And they spoke with him yesterday, but apparently they spoke with him yesterday via video link. Mm, so so no. it does appear that they weren't taken to the detention centre in Beijing to meet them in person. Mm-hmm. There was just a video link between in one conference room and the detention centre. So, you know, what what was said, we don't really know. But the delegation, the Taiwan delegation, has said that they agreed with the Chinese authorities that family members of the ROC nationals detained over the Kenya telecom fraud thing will be allowed to see them in Beijing. Of course, who is going to pay for the air tickets is another question. Mm. And they also said that they didn't discuss the issue of repatriating the 45 back to Taiwan. Right, that's the key here. Well, that's key. They said they were too busy because apparently the delegation, which was, of course, headed by Chen Wenqi, and she's the director of the Department of International and Cross-Strait Legal Affairs, she basically said they were too busy discussing the issue of joint investigations and evidence gathering related to both the cases in Kenya and Malaysia. Apparently, According to Chen, China has agreed to jointly investigate these telecom fraud rings now. But, of course, China has been blaming Taiwan for this, of course, Mm -hmm. because it's basically said, you know, all these people and the criminal gangs that are doing telecom fraud are from Taiwan. Right. Yeah, and and, uh, very interesting the fact that... uh you know, China was very slow to invite over that delegation. We thought that this was something that would have happened maybe a week ago. Now they're kind of in the works now, but uh, making some progress. Uh, So let's leave that uh, particular story for uh, just a second and uh, move on over to what happened in Belgium this week. Oh, yes, the poor poor Belgian deputy prime minister. Chris Peters, his name was. Mm. This is where you don't want to become a deputy anything, basically, because you get a crud jobs really he had to <laughs> it's like w- assistant principal basically it's like i've got nothing to do well you go and tell these people to bugger off which he did chris peters had to go into the basically a meeting of the organization for economic cooperation and development in brussels and basically tell taiwan's delegation that it wasn't welcome there and it should Ooh, leave it's awkward well it, he got he did it and taiwan's delegation was asked to leave and this was due to pressure from china because apparently this meeting it was a it was described in the media here in taiwan as being a high level symposium on excess capacity and structural adjustment in the steel sector. Not something I can imagine people oh, were no, queuing Oh no, we got outside. kicked out of that structural adjustment meeting. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> what are we going to do with our afternoon? Precisely. Well, I, I, they, well, you know what they did after they got kicked out? They went and protested outside. So they weren't mm. busy in the afternoon protesting. Yeah. Now, they later got an apology from the Belgian government and said whoops, we're sorry. We shouldn't have kicked you out. And then they were allowed back in this was a monday this happened mm-hmm. they were thrown out of the talk on monday and on tuesday they were allowed to attend other oecd meetings without incident apparently yeah okay and i guess kind of the excuse that was given is that they weren't high ranking enough as the Beijing other officials has basically said that this meeting the steel meeting which i won't even say his name again <laughs> it's just whoa but apparently the meeting was apparently limited to the participation of government officials and apparently china's delegation demanded that taiwan's delegation leave because beijing considered them not to be of high enough levels all right okay so that kind of catches us up on the uh, the basics of those news stories there uh, another one that we're not even going to get into in too much depth is uh Still waiting for that invitation from the World Health Assembly. It's a WHO organization. Uh, Thought it would be here a week ago, hoping it's still in the mail. Again, some speculation that uh, perhaps that invitation is being delayed uh, because of pressure from China. Similar set of circumstances. Uh, So, again, this kind of all just raises the question, are these just individual diplomatic snafus that are kind of on their own, just kind of popping up? piling up on this particular week just by random chance? Uh, Or is uh, China perhaps uh, putting the squeeze on Taiwan's diplomatic sphere uh, and uh, maybe even, you know, trying to send a message to Tsai Ing-wen? Bill, let's start with you. What do you see there? I I think it's hard to say that it's clearly a case of China applying pressure. And um, it's tempting to conclude that, but I don't think it's solid enough at this point to say it is. And I think that China has to be very careful uh, and when it tries these um, high-pressure if, – if this is high-pressure tactics, they have to be very, very careful. Because as history shows, whenever uh, China uses high-pressure tactics against Taiwan, it usually boomerangs. They don't get what they want. 
you know, there's another thing here that wasn't mentioned was about tourism, right? Okay, the number of uh, tourists to uh, Taiwan from the mainland, mainland tourists is somewhat reduced than it, w than it was in the past. But actually, that reduction took place uh, before the election, and it seems that uh, – China was really not uh, keen to have a whole lot of its citizens in Taiwan at the time of the election time because of all the political freedom that they might witness. Uh, still, the numbers haven't recovered. Uh, but it does seem that the Taiwan government has been pretty successful in drawing Singaporeans and other people to uh, Taiwan. If they're going to be able to make up that gap, I I'm not quite sure. But in a way, uh, this would be one way in which ta Taiwan could reduce its um, excessive dependence on the mainland. Mm. The the issue about the abductees is kind of interesting because in today's Taiwan Times, uh, President Ma says, well, this is not an issue of sovereignty. This is because of confusion in the division of labor. Mm. And I don't know if I quite buy that myself because mm -hmm. it does seem to be a sovereignty issue. I mean, um, th these folks were clearly uh, citizens of the Republic of China. China stepped in and sent them to Beijing. I mean, that seems like kidnapping to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if that's not an issue of sovereignty, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine what is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's just too early to say exactly, well, this is definitely Chinese-orchestrated attempts to influence Taiwan because I, I think that um, China is being very careful about the way it's doing it. It's not doing it in a straight-out, full-throttle method. Mm. It's allowing itself some plausible deniability, if you mm -hmm. want to put it that way. Mm. You know, there's another issue that I think is kind of interesting, and uh, I don't know if this is going to come up at a later point or not, but maybe I could just cast some attention on it now. Um, a few weeks ago in Washington, um, PRC Foreign Minister Wang Yi made a statement at the uh, CSIS. Uh, of course, everybody knows that's a leading think tank. Uh, and we, I mean, the statement went um, like this. Okay, Tsai Ing-wen, you got elected to the presidency uh, on the basis of the Constitution of the Republic of China. The fundamental concept of that constitution is uh, that there is one China. So since you got elected on that basis, and that's the reason why people elected you to the uh, presidency. Well, I think it was more than that, but this is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm paraphrasing Wang mm -hmm. Yi. Uh, we're holding you to that standard just as the voters of Taiwan will. Mm. Nothing, no mention about the 92 consensus. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, that's pretty interesting. What's going on? Right. A few weeks later at the National People's Conference, the Renda. Xi Jinping made a very strong statement repeatedly about the 92 consensus as mm -hmm. fundamental to cross-strait relations. The 92 consensus, 92 consensus. He couldn't have pounded that point home more. Mm. So what's going on? So, yeah, so that just gets to the question of what formulation of cross-strait ties uh, is the mainland going to find acceptable when Tsai Ing-wen gives her cross-strait sp inauguration speech? The, absolutely. Um yeah, if I were writing a speech for Tsai Ing-wen, her inaugural speech, I, I think there are a couple options that, um, that, 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 that might be pursued. Hopefully well, she's listening. Maybe this could be your application. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I'll send in my consulting bill. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. I, I, and I've heard a couple of different theories on this. Maybe she shouldn't say anything. She should just reiterate the fact that she got elected on the basis of the Constitution of the Republic of China. Okay, uh, maybe she should say something like um, a very oblique reference to the 92 consensus. But I, 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 I think that that is probably not wise because any mm. mention of the 92 consensus can be manipulated in one way or the other. Um, one is just to say that, yes, well, um, we realize the importance of a viable, uh, constructive relationship with China. And uh, we hope to achieve that and um, uh, on the basis of mutual respect. Mm. Yeah, just kind of take out some of the rhetoric right there. She could also add that she was elected in a country where people can vote for whoever they want to vote for. Oh, Good. well, that would just be snarky. Snarky, but true. Snarky, but true. Let's toss things over to Donovan now. Uh, so we're, we're, we're here and there that uh, really there's a lot of dimensions to this whole thing. There's a lot of implications uh, for Tsai Ing-wen and for Taiwan coming up on the inauguration. Uh, what do you take away from this whole mess? Well, you know, to a certain degree, if you sit and you look at some of these individual cases, uh, it's tricky because there. But basically what China's done is it actually created an atmosphere 
where they've definitely done some things. For example, they're not answering the, you know, the, the recently inaugurated hotline between Taiwan and China. They're not answering the phone anymore. Now, that's mm. obviously intentional. Um, you know, the, you know, setting up their relations with, with the Gambia, that's obviously intentional. When they went after the, the uh, case in Malaysia, that was obviously intentional. But when you get to the case in Kenya, for example, uh, was that intentional or not? And then, and then there's a big breakdown among, for example, all of the analysts and within Taiwan's government. And this is the part that really kind of bugged me about the whole situation. On the one hand, the case, the Kenny case was, was, uh, it, it's been going, it's actually been grinding on for over a year, which, so it had originally nothing to do with the, with the election here. Uh, so China was legitimately pursuing, uh, fraud cases which targeted its citizens. Now, it's not an abduction because it's actually pretty common where if you have citizens of, uh, of any country, really, in a third country, and they're tar- and they're committing a crime in in another country for them to be extradited to where the crime's taking place is not unusual. And you notice there was a U.S. Uh, one of those uh, suspects was also a U.S. national, and the U.S. hasn't raised a peep. Uh, they didn't call mm-hmm. their citizen being taken to China because they'd committed a crime there, uh, an abduction, or that it's violated U.S. sovereignty. There's none of that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the follow-on in Malaysia did appear to be planned. But what's bizarre about the, the, the Taiwan government's response is that the justice minister has been going on about, has repeatedly noted that this is actually by international law relatively common for them to be taken because the crimes were committed against Chinese. But the Mainland Affairs Council, Andrew Xia, he kept repeating to, and early on he, he said, under the 2009 agreement, we had an agreement where we should have gotten our citizens back, uh, whereas the Justice Minister said specifically, according to the 2009 agreement, we need to negotiate case by case. But then Andrew Shaw also went on and went on and said that we have a tacit agreement that in these fraud cases that we get our citizens back and they take theirs. Right, right. So there's a split even within the Ma administration well, on, you know, whether this was, we're being targeted or this is just a matter of course. And so I think with this Kenya one, there's something weird going on mm. within the Ma administration on this one. Mm. Well, I think kind of what it gets to is just the fact that there is a certain amount of discretion in these agreements, a certain amount of uh, handshakes and gentlemanly agreements, and China has some latitude to decide how much it's going to play ball with Taiwan, and uh, we're seeing currently uh, it's less willing than it has been in the past, less than it was in 2011 with the whole, uh, you know, there was a, f- a similar incident in with Taiwan nationals in the Philippines that yeah. were eventually returned to Taiwan. Of course, Beijing's big argument is apparently the courts in Taiwan are too lax to deal with these criminals mm. properly. I would have changed that and said, sorry, we don't think your courts are draconian enough to deal with these people, but that's just me being facetious on the matter. I think you probably just lost uh, your application to be their speechwriter. You're probably not going to get that gig, (laughs) unfortunately. Uh, I want to wrap up the first half uh, real quick with uh, uh, kind of changing the focus just a little bit. Um, We've been talking up to now about uh, how China is positioning itself coming up on the inauguration of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, let's broaden the conversation a bit, though, to post-inauguration day and uh, ask the question, uh, once Tsai Ing-wen is in office, what will be her biggest cross-strait challenges? Uh, and as luck would have it, we have a guy who's kind of thought through that question a little bit. Uh, Bill, you uh, just released an article in the Taipei Times uh, entitled Three Security Goals for President Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, so what's your take on this question? <clears throat> well, um... I, I think there are two parts to your question there. Um, <clears throat> I think her biggest challenge in cross-strait relations is going to be um, – one of her biggest challenges is going to be dealing with President Ma, ex-President mm. Ma. What's his role going to be after he leaves office? I don't think he's going to go away. He's going to be too concerned about his legacy, and in an intellectual sense, he um, feels that he's um, – put Taiwan on the right course uh, on cross-strait relations. He is constantly going to be nipping at her for one thing or another, uh, accepting the 92 consensus, as has been the case, etc. In today's uh, Taipei Times, the front page, he he says, well, look, you said, he he suggests that, uh, you said that uh, you're elected on the basis of the Constitution of the Republic of China, 
Um, the, uh, okay, that holds the one China principle. Uh, you said that you uh, supported the status quo. The status quo is the 92 consensus, so accept it. Mm. He's not going to back away from that, I don't think. He, and also, he's going to be free to travel, as I see it. Uh, he'd be probably be going to China. It's a place he always wanted to go, probably going to America. Uh, I suspect he's going to be making some trouble for her. So he's not going to just ride off quietly into the night. Right, right. I think uh, Taiwan will further have to convince uh, Beijing that she's not seeking uh, independence. Um, and that's going to be, uh, I think a lot of that work is going to be done at the inauguration speech. Right. But also the, the other side of that challenge is keeping the greener, more pro-independence elements in her party under wraps mm. uh, is going to be a challenge for her. And also, if they team up with the MPP, which is, a, I think, a very outspoken force, uh, and, and their intentions are pretty clear, um, she's um, she's going to have to deal with them as well. She's possibly could confront the same sort of situation that Chen Shui-bian did. Mm. He tried to be have a constructive relationship with China. He got pushed by the greener elements of his party to pursue independence. They left and joined the Taiwan Solidarity Union. She certainly doesn't want that to happen. So quite a balancing act that she's going to have to manage. Quite a balancing act. At the same time, while she wants to reduce Taiwan's uh, independence, or dependence, I should say, on the, on China, on the Chinese market, um, she has to do it in a way that doesn't alienate the Taishang or Chinese business because she needs their support here in Taiwan to achieve a lot of the economic goals she seeks to achieve. She's got so many challenges in front of her. Of course, then the other thing is going to be uh, what about the cross-strait supervisory legislation? In other words, the uh, process that uh, future cross-strait um, financial agreements would have to pass muster on if they were to be put in the legislation. There's well, the NPP comes back into the picture there because they weren't happy with uh, DPP's proposal last week. Right, right. So there's she's got so many challenges. I, I, I um, so It's, it's going to be a tough first 100 days, isn't it? It's going to be a very tough uh, uh, 100 days. And then, of course, the other part is, well, this is not so much cross-strait relations, but it's, you know, getting Taiwan into the TPP. Mm. Now, as far as the security goals in the article I wrote that came out yesterday in the Taipei Times, I suggested there's three security goals for her, and um, I, and she's raised these before, so I guess in a way I'm sort of reminding her of it. Mm. She said she would increase the defense budget to 3% of GDP. That sounds good. It's something Washington has wanted for some time. It's around 2.2% now. Is she really going to be able to do that? I mean, she's got her goals seem to be creating a, a more viable pension system, uh, care for the uh, aging in this aging society, etc. Uh, and if she should uh, increase the defense budget, um, I think she should spend it not so much on arms, but on creating a really viable volunteer force. Mm. Bolstering the um, national defense industry uh, should be another goal, which she said she's going to do. And the last part deals with uh, counterintelligence. Uh, there have been too many espionage cases in Taiwan, 33 in the last few years, of high-ranking uh, generals and admirals. Th this needs to stop. She needs to ramp up counterintelligence uh, operations mm. without, in a way that doesn't remind people of the bad old days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, oof, I feel daunted just hearing about all that stuff. I'm glad I don't have this job. Uh, a lot to look out for there. Well, we are coming up on a break, so uh, we are going to have to leave that point right there uh, and round out the first half there as well. When we return, we're going to be taking a closer look at U.S.-Taiwan business ties as a whole big old group of U.S. businessmen are making the rounds in Taiwan. And we're going to take a look at the latest in the OBI Pharma firestorm. All that more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Bill Sharp, and Donovan Smith. Kicking off the second half, Academia Seneca President Wang Chihui has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons the last couple of weeks. Those reasons being suspected insider trading of OBI Pharma stock. Well, it's been a big story. I'm sure most of our listeners 
are fairly familiar with it, but uh, we just haven't gotten around to covering it yet. Uh, always been a lot of other big stories to get to. Uh, but this week, we can't avoid it no more. We have to talk about it. Because prosecutors have now listed Wang as a defendant in their investigation into those insider trading allegations. Uh, now, because we left this hanging so long, uh, there's a bit of a backstory here that uh, we kind of have to attend to. So let's knock that out first. Uh, Gavin, uh, if I remember correctly, this all goes back to a failed drug trial for uh, cancer treatment. I believe it was breast cancer treatment drug mm-hmm. by OBI Pharma, big pharmaceuticals company. It comes out last year with a drug for breast cancer. Before the trials started, OBI Pharma shares basically went through the roof. Mm-hmm. Worth a lot of money. Test was held. The company sat on the results for a bit. Finally had to release the results. The results weren't quite as satisfactory as the company had had the public believe. They, they put a good spin on it, they though. They did put a good spin on it. <laughs> they said it worked, but... But Not that was statistically a, that, significantly. The but, of course, was all in block capital letters. Yeah. So it was a big but. Yeah. Anyway, so they came out and said, whoops, but the shares tanked. Yeah. The shares, the company's shares went down the toilet, flush them away, they're gone. Yeah. Now, unfortunately for the head of Academia Sinica, Mr. Ong there... He was actually... Tra- not only did he say great things about OBI Pharma, he also purchased and sold shares in OBI Pharma on his daughter's behalf. Now, mm-hmm. he, he, he sold 10,000 shares in OBI and on, here's the- on February the right. 18th. Now, on February the 21st, this is when the test results came out, the shares went down a toilet. So, basically, he cashed in on OBI Pharma shares at a time which has made it questionable to whether or not it was insider trading and whether or not he has violated the Securities and Exchange Act. And here's the kicker. He is an expert in the exact field that this medication is in, and he endorsed the product. Basically, yes. Now, also adding fuel to the fire is a claim, and this is just a claim that appeared in a a newspaper today, one of the local Chinese-language newspapers off the top of my head. I believe it was the China Times. Yes, it was. Um, OBI Pharma chairman Michael Jung, apparently gave Mr. Ong rather large numbers of shares as well in the company. So not only did Mr. Ong sell his daughter's shares, purchase his daughter's shares, he also was given shares by the chairman of OBI Pharma. And, of course, he was given them, and then he sold them, making more money for himself. Mm. Now, he was questioned this week. They, in fact, prosecutors dragged in 11 people this week. Yeah, and he's been hanging out in America for a couple of he weeks was, now. He, he, when it hit the fan, he was in America. I shouldn't say hiding out. He had no. medical issues. Yeah, he he was, couldn't he, come back. Yeah, when it hit the fan, he was in America for medical issues. He couldn't come back because he was sick. He sent a letter to the president saying, I'll resign, here we go, oh dear. And the president said, no, you will not resign, you will come back here and you will explain yourself. But he's back now. And he did come back and... Wednesday, he was one of 11 people who was summoned for questioning to explain himself. Some of these people, at least one other one, Samuel Yin, of course, from the Runtex Group, is also a rather large player here in Taiwan. There's some question over how he acted with these OBI Pharma shares. They questioned these 11 people. Um, Mr. Ong, Ong Chi Hui, of course, the Academia Sinica boss, he's been banned from leaving the island with prosecutors saying that he will have to return for more questions at a later date, which is a polite way of saying we're still interested in you. And he's been named as a defendant. He's been named so. as a defendant, basically. So, he's, yeah, he's not, not a happy bunny at the moment. Is that different from being indicted, being named yeah, as a defendant? Yeah, he hasn't been indicted. He, yeah, but if when you're indicted, you know it's going to go to court. If you're just mm-hmm. named, you're just, well, it might go away, it might not go away. Okay. Oh, I can't leave the country. But the Sherlin District Court on Thursday, a very early Thursday morning, did release on bail Michael Jung, who's the OBI Pharma chairman, who allegedly gave Ong all these shares. And he also, he was released on bail of 1 million NT, while the OBI Pharma's financial department manager, Jung Hui Fun, she was released on bail of half a million NT. Mm. So there's... It's gone from, like, a nothing story to, like, oh, dear, there's some serious heads could roll in this. And, of course, it's Academia Sinica, which, of course, is the island's 
most prestigious research institute because of course you do your research there, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got it. We got a guy from Academia Seneca right here, giving a big old grin. Um, but uh, okay, so we get a sense of how broad this thing is, how quickly it snowballed. Uh, we don't really need to dwell on the particulars of this case anymore. I think that we're going to find out more uh, as it unfolds. So no, no point in our speculating. Apparently, here. he's spoken to Ma once about this, and he's been invited back. But I'm not sure whether this puts the president. In a presidential position, you've got a possibly, big block capital letters, possibly, crooked man who basically broke the law, explaining himself to the president and not the people he should be explaining himself to, that being court. Right, yeah. You, uh, Ma probably wants to get his hands off of this case as soon as possible if, uh, from a political standpoint. Uh, but let's, uh, let's get our hands off the case as well and instead uh, look at kind of a different angle of all of this. That being uh, the fact that the biotech and biomedical industries uh, kind of implicate Tsai Ing-wen as well, just in the sense that those are industries that uh, during her campaign she has said that she wants to promote, she wants to make those uh, a big part of her uh, economic plan, her industrial plan for uh, kind of spurring the Taiwan economy. Uh, and she has ties there herself. Uh, when she stepped down as head of the DPP, she kind of worked with one of those companies for just a little bit. So uh, she's kind of involved in the industry as a whole. Uh, and Bill, you were pointed out to me before we turned on these mics that uh, this could get complicated for that plan. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the, the, the real shame here is um, um, that, you know, she's put so much emphasis on um, making the biomedical industry uh, the, the foundation of her uh, ideas to revamp, to re-energize Taiwan's economy. Uh, she personally seems to be invested, not as I understand, not with OBI, but with a company that cooperated with OBI. Now I understand that she's um, removed all her affiliation from that, and and you know there's there's no connection. However, it does seem that her brother is sort of hovering around this biomedical um, pursuit in a way that. Um, could conceivably spell trouble for her. I think. I think. Does he I, own shares, or? I, I understand that he does. He has interest, and um, I, I think that she needs to be very cautious about um, her brother's involvement with this. There's, there's suspicions cast uh, on him. That, this is the same brother, by the way, that had uh, an account at the same uh, law firm, accounting firm uh, that was uncovered in the Panama Papers. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. It's unfortunate, I think, that in Asian politics that oftentimes you have a leader, and the best example I can think of right off the top of my head is the former President Roe um, uh, of uh, President of South Korea um, two presidents ago. And I, I think that he really tried to do a very good job and be very above board and do everything by the, by the letter of the law. It's unfortunate that his wife was making deals behind his back uh, with business interests in order to collect enough money to send her son to uh, Stanford University for graduate studies. Uh, unfortunately, this thing just happens a bit too much, I think, in Asian politics. And we come to Taiwan. Well, was uh, President Chan Shui-bin, was he really one instigating the corruption charges that later got leveled against him? Or was it his wife doing deals mm. behind his back? Um, I, I'm... I think there's a divided opinion on that, but it does definitely seem his wife was heavily involved, whether he was or not. Uh, so perhaps the word of the day here is liability, political liability. Political liability. Well, Which is not something you want Yeah, not something you want going into your first term. Right, right. Because, I, I mean, she obviously has great, great hopes for reviving Taiwan's economy, and I'm sure we all hope that she does. And we just don't really want to see anything get you know, derailed because of that. All right, the theme of today is liabilities and uh, trouble on the horizon. But we're going we're gonna to leave politics entirely for today and uh, move over to a business story. Boosting business is what we're going to be talking about uh, in this last segment. Specifically, business ties between the U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, because this week, we've got some high-profile business types in town, Gavin. Yes, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council was in town this week for talks, on basically on promoting business ties between Taiwan and the United States. And just prior to their arrival, Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers said that topping the agenda would be Taiwan's participation in round two talks for joining the much-talked-about, much-touted 
and uh, much criticised as well in some parts, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm. And basically, Hammond Chambers has basically come out and saying, we hope to be here, we're going to talk to the last government, the outgoing President Mining Joe's administration, we're also going to talk to the new incoming DPP administration, and they're going to work with her to facilitate Taiwan's joining the DPP in the second round. But of course, this has sparked a whole heap of hullabaloo, basically, about Taiwan's opening up to foreign trade organisations to basically, what would you call it? There's a word. International trade? International trade agreement? No, there's a word. There's Rectopamine? A, re, no, there's a word. Reciprocity? Integration. That's the word I'm looking for. Okay. That's the, that was the word. Nearly, nearly. I'm going to leave that all in. I'm going to leave that all in. Integration. <laughs> I think you should have gone with ractopamine. <laughs> to, I was going to get to ractopamine, you see. I was going to get it. <laughs> International integration with trade, of course. And, of course, the TPP. Taiwan wants to join the TPP, and America wants it to join the TPP. But, of course, China's looming in the horizon in the background saying maybe... Because China's not in the TPP, but China, of course, could have sway with countries that are in the TPP. Mm. to possibly block Taiwan's entry in the TPP. But that's only one issue here. Of course, the other big issue with Taiwan joining the TPP is the pork issue. And this is where I get to ractopamine, of course. There we go. There we go. There we go. And in today's... (laughs) Uh, United Daily News, in fact, a Chinese-language newspaper here, the incoming head of the Council of Agriculture, Cao Chi Hong, his name is, he actually very candidly said that this pork ractopamine, United States opening Taiwan to US pork containing ractopamine is going to be a very thorny issue. Mm. And basically he came out and very candidly said... We're going to have to do it anyway, probably, because otherwise we're probably not going to get allowed to join the TPP. Mm. What's interesting here is, of course, as Bill pointed out to me earlier today, off the show, the world thinks of the US as having a big beef market. A lot Mm. of power when it comes to beef, of course. And you don't think of a US pork market. But, of course, the US pork market is huge, and there are senators and members of Congress who come from US pork farming states that are putting a lot of pressure on the US government not to invite Taiwan to the TPP second round talks unless the island does allow mm. the pork into the country. So no, right. no, wait, Gavin, are you saying there's actually pork in politics? <laughs> we may have found it. We may have found the pork. Didn't even have to look too hard, to be honest. No, I couldn't find it in the barrel, though, yeah? The pork <laughs> barrel was missing. Uh, Bill, what, what, what's your take, uh, just looking at the future prospects for this? I'd like to see Taiwan in the TPP. Uh, It would help to reduce Taiwan's uh, excessive dependence on China, on the Chinese market. Uh, It does seem that um, uh, Taiwan does have to open up more, not only in the area of pork, uh, but uh, also in other areas. On the other hand, uh, you know, it seems to me USTR is being uh, um, overly strict about this. And I, I've heard that from lots of people who work in Washington and are familiar with uh, trade issues and that sort of thing. But it, it comes back to what Gavin mentioned. It, there's a lot of political pressure in Washington being put on this issue from members of the Senate, members of Congress that come from pork-producing states. Um, I, th- I think it's 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 unfortunate. And I, as I think of it too, you know, Taiwan compromised on beef a few years ago, and of course, Su Chi paid a political price for that. He had to resign. Um, the beef industry in Taiwan is, as far as I can see, is pretty small, almost insignificant. Um, the pork industry is huge. You have competing political pressures, um, you know, here in Taiwan and in the U.S. on, on the pork issue. Uh, I hope it gets solved. Uh, I really would like to see Taiwan in the TPP. Mm. Well, I, I think that, that if, the, if Taiwan joins the, the TPP, these American politicians have to be able to bring home the bacon, that's for sure. That is for sure. <laughs> that's staying in. <laughs> now, what's interesting is I noticed here there, there's actually something that, uh, is that the, the head of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, said said here that there must. He said specifically that there must be a way to solve the problem of what designation and how Taiwan could apply for AIIB membership. So the AIIB, in spite of China being a little prickly on bringing in Taiwan on it, it, it looks like they may actually be making. They may come back and make a bid to bring Taiwan back in in, in that direction as opposed to the TPP. 
Mm. In in theory, Taiwan could join both, but I'm wondering if they're going either side's going to make an either or uh, sort of a situation. Now, for the TPP bid, obviously, I believe Japan has specific uh, conditions on uh, on how much and in what in what kinds of meat. I forget the exact details, but there there are specifications and it's, to a certain degree, face saving ways of handling ractopamine uh, doped meat in Japan. I believe South Korea as well. So that's, I believe that's true. Talk that's about true. Using the, with the Japanese model. Hmm. So, Chai Wynn has mentioned that too. She said, well, we should look at the, um, the South Korean model and the Japanese model because, yes, they have beef that has a certain percentage of ractopamine in it. And, and maybe we can, we can um, you know, adopt that model. I mean, you know, when it comes to this whole thing about food safety, it seems that people in, in, in Northeast Asia, just not Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, they're very, very sensitive about this. But Given their sensitivities in South Korea and Japan, couldn't that be a model for Taiwan? You, you know, um, Donovan, I, I wanted to ask you a question. There's a point you just made. I, 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 I want to make sure that I got it right. Did, did you suggest that the mainland might be rethinking Taiwan's admission into the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank as a way of seducing it away from or, or drawing it away from TPP? Uh, well, okay. Here's here's the here's the quote here that, that I've got. Um, is it was reported on the papers the other day that the the head uh, uh, the Jin uh, sorry Jin Nijun, the president of the, of the uh, AIAB, uh, in in a symposium in Washington, stated that the it, basically that the, he he said there must be a way to solve this problem of getting Taiwan, and that there there should be a way to figure this out. Essentially, is what he's boiling it down to. So now, is that just him talking, or is... Now, of course, he's obviously from China. This is a China-led bank. Right. So I thought this was a very interesting statement to come from the president of the AIIB in Washington in a very international setting. So, you know, for him, for him to say that in Washington, now, once again, which could get back to kind of a conversation we had earlier, is if China says something or an official that's either Chinese or affiliated with China, says or does something, is it part of a greater united front pattern, or is it an individual case? <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, and again, like you were talking about earlier, is that right now there's an atmosphere, particularly in the run-up to the inauguration, and I'm sure right after the inauguration, where everybody's watching everything that China's doing. That's very interesting because, you know, as I'm sure you realize, there are people in Beijing, especially like in the, the, the Guotaiban, the Taiwan Affairs Office, who do nothing every day except sit around and think of ways that they can get their hands on Taiwan and to come up with some way of sort of drawing Taiwan away from TPP and into the AIIB. It's easier to say the name of that bank in Chinese, Yatohim, <laughs> than go through the long English name. Um, that's how they're keeping us out of it. That's how they're keeping us out of it. Is it that, that, that's very interesting. That, that, that's very interesting. And that, that sort of seems to be their way of doing things. I mean, they sort of put down the, um, I guess you'd say, a gauntlet to Taiwan. And so, well, I guess what, you, you don't have the right name, so forget it. But now they're kind of rethinking things. And um, it, it's pretty clever on their behalf, actually. Hmm. Yeah, I mean they, they've got us. They've got us all guessing. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you if you read, you know, the the you know the the opinion blogs, like for example, in Kenya, where you know, uh, where where Michael Turton and and J. Michael Cole came down, kind of on opposite sides on that one, and hmm. even within the government, we, you know, Andrew Xia is saying one thing, and you know, the the Minister of Justice is saying another, and they've kind of got us all guessing. And it's like I, you know, so uh, and so the question mark is. How much is this coordinated, and how much of it is they they've set a tone, and then these things can happen, and then the TAO will follow up kind of after it happens. I mean, you know, some of it's definitely planned in advance, some of it may not be, but there's definitely a tone and a and an atmosphere of uh, you know. Oh, China must be sending us coded messages, you know, and, and because they are, but we don't know 100 percent of the time which ones are the coded ones and which ones aren't. They're coded messages and half messages, and, and and I think we're also in a period of flux here. Yeah, we're in a period of change, and nobody knows exactly what's happening yet. Yeah, and I think they're trying to destabilize things intentionally. 
Mm. Mm. All right, so I guess we're going to have to walk away from this thing uh, with more question marks than we started. I, we, were, we were supposed to be the ones with the answers, but uh, <laughs> I guess that's not how it's going to shake out today. Uh, so we're going to leave that final broadcast story right there and move to our final story of the day, which is our podcast bonus story. Uh, and this is a story that, uh, well, it's uh, not exactly on the lighter end of things, but it's uh, at, at least not quite as serious as uh, the fare that we've been munching on up till now. So, Gavin, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the Taipei City Government. Now, the Taipei City Government under Mayor Kerwinger has big plans. It plans to demolish things. And these things it plans to demolish are pedestrian overpasses and pedestrian underpasses. Of course, you can demolish an overpass very easily. An underpass, I guess you would say, how would you demolish an underpass? You just fill close it, it up. Fill it with concrete, I guess, is the one answer way to, to do that it. one. You could fill it with water and then make it a scuba diving training centre. Now, apparently, <laughs> you could do, you could do. Or, or you could actually, i tell you what underpasses are good for. Underpasses are good for getting a big box of fireworks and letting the whole box of fireworks off in an underpass. That is one good use. Another good use for them I'm is... I'm not you- saying I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> Another you've heard of people th- who have. Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I have heard of people who have, and I'm not giving their names away. <laughs> anyway, apparently, according to the Taipei city government, there are currently 59 pedestrian overpasses in the city and 34 underpasses. Now, the Taipei city government says it's budgeted 35 million NT to possibly demolish 18 of the overpasses and 34 of the underpasses. Now, obviously, the underpasses, if you live in Taipei, you know some underpasses are prone to flooding. Obviously, these underpasses could be gotten rid of. Overpasses, now, there's two types of overpasses in Taipei. There's the grotty, very old ones, and there's the new ones. Now, the new ones are mostly near schools, where there are large roads, and these come with escalators, elevators, and they look nice. Mm. The government is not planning to demolish them. It's actually planning to demolish the rather tacky ones. The tacky ones come to mind. We have one on Shinny and Jilong Road, and we have one on Zhongxiao West Road. They're the two that come to immediate mind there. There's also one on Herping and Xinxiang South Road. And so the, the, the reasoning here is the government is saying that nobody actually uses them, A, and uh, B, uh, they're not accessible to uh, handicapped people. Yeah, they're also eyesores. Another thing is an eyesore. I mean, the, the, these overpasses, they do look pretty grotty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've over the years, they've there's the big one on Shinny and Jilung, of course, where there used to be more entrances and exits to it. Mm-hmm. But now they've taken down the stairwells where there used to be the stairwells up and down from it, and it's just, it looks awful. Okay, but at the same time, I, I okay, maybe a lot of people don't use it. I use it. Do you use it, Gavin? I mean, I don't, I hate waiting at a red no. light forever. They're terrible. I don't use them at all. Well, you don't I, use them at all? No, in fact, I only use one of them, and that is the one on Zhongxiao West Road. That's mm-hmm. the only one I actually used in the past two years. And it's probably saved you hours of your life using that thing. It probably has, because there's nowhere to cross Zhongxiao West Road. Other roads, there's, there's zebra, zebra crossings, zebra crossings, whatever way you say that. So it's handy. But some, and obviously, Jilung and Shinny, that's a big, nasty road. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot safer to go, if you are there, to go across the bridge than wait where you've got cars turning left, right, and coming at you. That's a nasty road. So, right. you know, I'm not sure whether I agree with this or not. Underpasses, I do not do underpasses. I do not believe in going down <laughs> to go up. <laughs> it's, a, it's a philosophical <laughs> belief. It's like, if I want, it's like if I want to fly to Bangkok, I'm not going to get a flight to Manila first. Mm. No, I mean, I, I understand the overpasses. They're an eyesore. The Shinny, the, the Shinny Jilung Road one, that intersection, I, I must admit, I use, I use that one a fair bit. Um... But uh, the the underpasses, the, the the thing is that right now is uh, you know right now there's a lot of talk about low cost housing. If they fill those in, then uh, you've, you've you've not only lost your low cost housing, you, you've lost your uh, your your flood uh, your your, your uh, flood overflow uh, mm. uh, basins. So yeah. I, I think they may be able to do a lot more with the underpasses than they're doing with them now. They they, they could find another use for them. 
Uh, Bill, you uh, you just flew into Taiwan. Uh, you, you you usually you call Hawaii home, but uh, you, you're you're now taking up residency at Academia Seneca. You've been here since about February. Are you one to avail yourself of these uh, overpasses and underpasses? Uh, personally, I've never. Uh, all the times I've been to Taiwan, I've never really liked the underpasses or the overpasses. I'm alone on this one. I'm so alone on this uh, um, one. I but you know what I wonder. I wonder um, how this might impact uh, Mayor Kowenja's uh, population. Popularity, and because it seems to be going down, and um, lowest in Taiwan of all the mayors, in fact, lowest in Taiwan of all the mayors. He doesn't seem to have a way out of it. Uh, some people say he's bringing his wife along with him to more functions because he thinks that'll help to uh, to to raise up his his approval rating. Um, and, and to me, this is um, in, in a broader sense, it's kind of. Um, of concern because it seems to me uh, Wang Kujia he's sort of as a person who was sort of staking out the middle path in Taiwan politics between the the blue and the green and trying to bring sides together mm. and as one interested in the polarization of Taiwan society as that's what I'm researching at uh, Academia Sinica I, I I hope it's not a setback to that concept mm. uh, I'm working with this concept which I call the turquoiseization of Taiwan politics is sort of bringing the blue and the green together and I saw where Mayor Kowenja uh, might be a, a sort of a pioneer in that area. And uh, now, as his, as I say, his mindial goes down, um, I wonder what the impact of all this is going to be. If he gets rid of the um, overpasses and the underpasses, is that going to help him or hurt him? I know in a broader sense he thinks he needs to um, um, beautify Taipei. Um, but then this also gets that, you know... Ripping out the past achievements of past administrations. Yeah, and and and, and I guess that gets to the Taipei Dome as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting um, at. And uh, I I I'm not quite sure where how this is going to pan out for him. Hmm. What about do you have, is there many underpasses and overpasses in Taichung, Donovan? Yeah, there are some. Yeah. And uh, do you, you use them? Uh, not if I can. Not if I can avoid it. Oh, you're a snob. You're an underpass and overpass snob. I always knew that about you, Donovan. <laughs> it seems to be part of the problem with underpasses. Well, I haven't been in, through any underpasses this time in Taiwan uh, during this day, but in the past, whenever you went under an underpass, it was crowded with, you know, um, peddlers of one kind or another. Mm. It was kind of hard to walk Busters through them in a way. The homeless. In Taichung, in Taipei, I associate them a lot with buskers. In Taichung, I mostly associate them with the smell of urine and people sleeping in them. Mm. Oh, that's just part of the charm. That's just part of the charm. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I guess uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree, or everyone else is going to have to disagree with me, and I'll have to agree to disagree with everyone else because we're going to leave it there for today. That is our show. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, and we've just started posting to our blog. You can find links to the show right there as well. Uh, if you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, yeah, Gavin. Good night. Donovan Smith by phone. Thank you, Donovan. Thank you. And uh, first-timer Bill Sharp, uh, really good to have you on the program. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.